My name is Ben Greenfield, and on this episode of the Ben Greenfield Life Podcast. When we were looking, you know, first starting Zero Acre Farms and trying to solve this problem of how do we get vegetable oils out of the food system, that idea kind of came about partly through my restaurant experience and in not finding an oil that, that we could just use as a workhorse uh, in, in the kitchen. And talking to other chefs, it seemed like we weren't the only ones, and the oil that, that was used in restaurants was often an afterthought. Faith, family, fitness, health, performance, nutrition, longevity, ancestral living, biohacking, and a whole lot more. Welcome to the show. All right, it's no secret that if you see me with my fanny pack on, there's lots of stuff in that fanny pack. Like I'm constantly chewing gum and I've got like my credit cards in there and I've got like essential oils and essential oil vape pens and little tiny bottles of extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil for when I go out to eat. But I always have this bag of amazing salt. I travel everywhere with salt. I'm a salt fiend. It's amazing for minerals, for blood pressure, for adrenals, and a whole lot more. It makes everything super delicious, even a crappy salad at the airport. The salt I use is super crunchy. These great big salt crystals. It's super clean. It's totally free of ocean-borne microplastics, and it's the most flavorful salt I use. I use other salts, but this one is top of the totem pole. It's my favorite. I travel with it everywhere. When friends come up to my house, I give them bags of this stuff. It's called Kalima Salt. It's uh, harvested from the Kalima Salt Flats in Mexico. Not only do they support the Salineros down there when you purchase this salt, so there's a point of people who are harvesting it, you get your first bag for free. No code required at all. You just go to greenfieldsalt.com. It's that easy. Greenfieldsalt.com. They'll get you a free bag of Kalima sea salt. Got to try this stuff out. Way better than like the Himalayan that has all the iron and toxins and plastics in it. Kalima is the way to go. It's so flavorful. You're welcome because you're never going to look back when you switch to this salt. Greenfieldsalt.com. Well, you might often hear that the average adult should get seven to nine hours of sleep every night. That's not always possible, obviously. More and more people are forced to make lifestyle decisions to get more deep sleep. And research has shown that quality matters just as much as quantity. Even if you can't stay in bed as long, the quality of that sleep really, truly matters. Now, deep sleep, the first half of the night is that deep sleep window. And that's when things start to drop. Your heart rate, your breath, your blood pressure, your muscle activity, your body temperature. Since that temp drop is such a crucial aspect of the deep sleep stage, finding ways to activate that sleep switch can help to increase your levels of deep sleep. And that's where this stuff called Chili Sleep comes in. So Chili Sleep makes customizable climate-controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. It's hydro-powered, temperature-controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing mattress to give you your ideal sleep temperature. I love this, especially if I've had a big meal the night before I go to sleep because it just dumps my body temperature way down. I don't wake up with the meat sweats or anything. But when I travel, I really, really miss it. I kind of get pissed when I travel. I don't have my whole bed with me because this chilly sleep stuff just keeps me in action. Gives me amazing deep sleep percentages. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep. And you can adjust it for hot too. Like whether you sleep hot or cold, they work. They'll be fall asleep. They'll be stay asleep. They give you the confidence and the energy to power through your day. Just imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chilly sleep can help make that happen. You get to get a uh, up to 30% off the purchase of any of their new sleep systems at chillysleep.com slash Ben Greenfield. That's available exclusively for my listeners. C-H-I-L-I sleep.com slash Ben Greenfield. All right, let's talk about one of the best things you can do to improve your health. That's about seven hours of quality sleep every night. Yeah, it changes from person to person. Let's say it's seven-ish hours and it can be hard to get that much sleep. You can be in bed that long, but your mind keeps you awake. You can't get comfortable. You wake up early or in the wee hours. You can't fall asleep again. There are literally dozens of reasons why you might have a hard time getting seven hours of quality sleep every night. But it's important because that's when your body heals itself. If you're not getting enough quality sleep, you're increasing your risk of a lot of chronic diseases, making it harder to lose weight and, uh, and regulate your appetite. And one way that you can come at this is to replenish your magnesium levels. 75% of people don't have enough magnesium, and that helps explain why so many people have sleep problems. It's not the only reason, but it's a big reason. Most magnesium supplements aren't full spectrum, so they don't fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. So that kind of adds to the problem. People take magnesium, and they don't realize it's the wrong kind. There's seven forms of magnesium, seven unique forms. You got to get all of them. 
if you want to experience the true calming and sleep enhancing effects of magnesium. So if magnesium hasn't worked for you in the past, it's probably a reason, probably not getting the right, the right type of magnesium, the right form of magnesium. Magnesium breakthrough by this company called Bioptimizers has all seven forms. You just take two capsules before you get to bed. Although admittedly, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I take four because I think it really helps with the bowel movement the next morning. But anyways, you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and frankly, how much better your poop slips out the next day. So you'll feel a lot more rested when you wake up with this stuff and you get 42%, 42, interesting number, but 42% discount on Magnesium Breakthrough when you go to magbreakthrough.com slash Ben. That's magbreakthrough.com slash Ben. Well, folks, it's Monday morning right now, and my family and I like to have these glorious Sabbath day feasts on Sunday night. Yesterday, my sons and I had just gotten back from a bow hunting competition, and my wife was gone, so I wandered out into the forest, and I harvested a bunch of nettle, and uh, I, I foraged around and got, a, got black pearl and oyster and shiitake mushrooms and came back and got everything all, all prepared on the counter and made some wild plant pesto with walnuts and and pine nuts and, and parmesan and, and basil and nettle with the plants from the forest. And then I, I took the mushrooms and, you know, did a little citrus salt and pepper and apple cider vinegar on them and, and the salmon, a little dill and salt and pepper. But for the oil, I actually totally switched lanes last night. I went way out of my comfort zone. I did not grab extra virgin olive oil. I did not grab avocado oil, two or two of my, my cooking oils of choice, nor did I grab butter or coconut oil or macadamia oil or any other oils with the high smoke point or, or good stability that I've talked about in the past. Instead, I grabbed this newfangled stuff that's produced via some form of microbial fermentation that I'd received a couple days earlier, a tiny little bottle that reportedly had like higher amounts of monounsaturated heart healthy fats than like avocado oil or olive oil, but also a smoke point that was like ridiculously high, like 485 or so degrees Fahrenheit. So I slathered it all over the mushrooms, used it on the salmon and made this dinner and brought it to my family. And they all absolutely loved it. And the oil just performed remarkably and brought out the flavor of the food and, and had good taste and, and kind of gave me everything I'd be looking for in, say, like a, a vegetable oil without actually having to consume what I consider to be one of the scourges of the nutrition world, uh, vegetable oil. So anyways, um, this little bottle of oil that I use was from this new company called Zero Acre Farms. And Zero Acre Farms is basically cracking the code on how to basically get get a lot of a lot of these you know restaurants or or packaged food consumer food uh, what have you all these people who are turning to vegetable oil because it's much less expensive than extra virgin olive oil avocado oil macadamia nut oil I've done podcasts in the past about how freaking five star Napa Valley restaurants are cutting their olive oil half and half with canola oil just to cut costs. And, and this is a very, very common practice. But a big part of that is because vegetable oil is so cheap and affordable and extra virgin olive oil and avocado oil and the like is not. But what if something that performed like vegetable oil, but that was actually healthy did exist? And, and that's where this, this cultured oil that's being made by Zero Acre Farms fits in. I just found out about these folks. They just sent me a bottle. Like I mentioned, I first tried it last night just to, just to get a little taste of it before this podcast. And uh, I really, really want to fill you in on what this is all about. Well, I don't want to. I want my guest to. My guest on today's show is Jeff Nobbs. Jeff uh, originally had, a, had an early career in technology. He founded a healthy, uh, fast, casual restaurant chain called Katava. He was the COO of a company called Perfect Keto. Uh, he co-founded a food security nonprofit organization called Help Kitchen. But now he's the co-founder and CEO of Zero Acre Farms, which is making this new cultured oil. So anyways, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Jeff tell you more about what they're up to over there at Zero Acre Farms. But all the show notes for everything you're about to hear, you can grab at bengreenfieldlife.com slash zero acre podcast. That's bengreenfieldlife.com slash the word zero, Z-E-R-O, acre, A-C-R-E, podcast. So Jeff, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Ben. It's an honor to be here and great to talk to you. Yeah. You should have come over for dinner last night, dude. Where were you? You know, I've, I've already eaten. It's, it's Monday morning, <laughs> but your description just made me hungry again. 
Yeah, well, it actually was pretty good, and I get to have leftover mushrooms for for uh, for lunch today. Leftover mushrooms and leftover nettle, but that I'm I'm not joking. Like that oil worked really really well, and and I definitely want to want to learn more about the oil. But just backpedaling a little bit, I'm I'm curious, just as a foodie myself, and you know, my parents have been in the restaurant industry. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about this restaurant Catava that you ran and and how that came to be and how you kind of got into the whole food industry in the first place. Yeah, you know, it, it, it goes back. The story goes back. Catava is a result of just not being satisfied with the type of food that is available at most restaurants. And Catava was my first foray into food professionally. 15 years or so prior to Catava, I, I had been thinking about food, um, you know, first as sort of a side interest, and then it, it kind of became center stage in my life. And I think I first got into food in in high school, um, actually, when I was trying to get big for the, the high school football team. You know, uh-huh. I was a skinny little scrawny kid, and I, I, I bought some cheap ebook on how to gain mass in 40 days. You know, something like that was was the title. By the way, I'm guessing I probably owned something very similar when I was in college, standing behind the the gym counter as a as a as a gym manager. I, I remember thumbing through many books like that. Oh yeah, and I'm sure you can imagine what was in it. You know. It, all about macros and for, for putting on mass, all about just eating everything in sight, essentially. Right. And so I did that and I put on weight and I got bigger. And, uh, you know, most people are trying, trying to lose weight. But for me, that was when the, the light bulb first went off that food has a really big impact on how we look, how we perform, how we feel. And so I continued doing that for a while, you know, throughout my teenage years. And as I was eating all this food, I started to think about if I'm going to be eating so many calories, what should I be eating and what will make me feel best? What will make me perform best? You know, mo- mostly through the lens of, uh, you know, wanting to look good and, and wanting to increase my bench press one rep max and things like that for the football team. Doing a lot of that research, I just ended up with more questions and answers. This is still the case, but when you ask questions about diet, you're going to get 10 different answers from 10 different people. And oddly enough, by the way, sometimes all of them can be right because there's 10 different versions of human biochemical individuality. That's exactly right. And, you know, especially in today's world, people want black or white answers and especially in food, nutrition, health, it's nuanced. And the answer mostly lies in the gray area. And to your point, it's, it's often personalized. And I, I didn't realize any of this when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17, trying to look into this stuff. I just expected very clear answers. It's something like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be drinking so much Coca-Cola and, and soda and sugar. Everyone seemed to agree on that. And so I was expecting the rest of diet and nutrition to to follow a similar framework of should we eat this? Yes or no. Certainly, it's more complicated than that. I, I grew up, though, eating a fairly standard American diet, plenty of Costco packs of croissants and Hot Pockets and Bagel Bites and and all the rest. But, you know, I, I still I wanted to figure out what I could do that, that was better. And several years of this, you know, kind of had some clarity. But in my uh, in my early 20s, my parents passed away from different chronic diseases six, mm. six months apart. And I, I now see those diseases as preventable. And at, at the time, I wanted to figure out why they got sick, why that happened and maybe how I could prevent that from happening to, to anyone else. And that sort of became my life mission was looking at chronic disease and what causes it and how to reverse it. Mm-hmm. And for me, m- most of my family was in medicine, including my mother, she was a nurse, but my father has, had always been an entrepreneur. So when I thought of, when a problem kind of came onto my radar, what naturally was the next step in my mind was creating a business to try and solve that problem. At the time I was running an e-commerce business that had nothing to do with food but learning a lot about running businesses. And so during that time, I was also reading research from the CDC, from uh, molecular biology textbooks and biochemistry tra- textbooks, really trying to understand this problem. And you know, chronic disease obviously is a, is a huge issue, especially in the US. The, the result of all this research was what I thought was a you know, pretty good diet that would help prevent disease. But what boggled my mind was that this was not at all the diet that was available to most people in, in the channel where we consume most of our calories, which is restaurants. It certainly wasn't available via packaged foods. And so I thought if we can make a big impact on what people eat, the way to do that is by changing the food that we get in the number one source of our calories in restaurants. So uh, so I started one with a friend and that restaurant became Catava. And Catava is- Where was that at, by the way? What city? It's in the Bay Area. We have a couple okay. locations uh, in San Francisco and Oakland. And maybe your listeners, especially your listeners, may, maybe have heard the word Catava before. 
Catawba is an island off of Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. a remote island where they essentially have found no disease there. Uh, it's a population largely free of disease. You know, they can barely find any zits or pimples on their faces. And they eat a diet that is certainly free of seed oils and vegetable oils, but uh, largely whole food based diet. Um, and, you know, that's how humans should should be disease free. So we we named the restaurant after that island as, as yeah. a nod to that way of eating. That's pretty cool. But by, by the way, I've talked about the Catawban diet before on my podcast about this idea of like fish and coconut oil and some of these these citrusy and plant-based fibers. And the interesting thing is that uh, there, there's a disproportionately high number of apple lipoprotein E uh, 4-4 carriers on the island of Catawba, which in a Western diet context typically manifests in pretty significant onset of dementia, Alzheimer's, and heart disease, often in early age. And despite these folks having that same gene, it's not manifesting, interestingly, based on their their Catawban diet. Uh, I'll link to a couple of, of a podcasts and stories I've done about that before, but it actually really is quite interesting. It doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean, as we were kind of alluding to earlier, that like the Catawban diet is, is the bee's knees for everybody. But at the same time, it really, really is interesting how it seems to offer a great deal of protection against these folks from their, from their built-in genotype. That is really interesting. And you know, what I, what I think is especially interesting is a lot of these folks, you know, Catawbans will, they smoke, you know, they have access to cigarettes and yet they're still not seeing the disease rates we are today, which, which, you know, points to diet and other lifestyle factors. And to your point, I think there's so much to learn from hunter-gatherer societies, and it's the best tool we have to figure out how did humans live before all of this modern technology. So it's important to make sure those those societies don't get influenced too much by by Western modernities. Yeah, and and interestingly, like the Catawban diet, like I mentioned, you know, they got fish, they got coconut, they got fruit. I know they do a lot of underground storage organs too, like yam and sweet potato, you know, purple potato or taro, you know, all, uh, kind of similar to what you might experience, say, if you were to go visit Hawaii and eat the indigenous uh, the Hawaiian diet. But interestingly, their diet is notoriously absent of a lot of cereals and grains and sugars, which I, I think can be an issue, but is not as big of an issue uh, for people who don't have a compromised gut or people who are physically active as the oils and the margarines that the people in Catawba also do not consume. And I've said this before, like if I was at a, I was at like a, like a fair and someone walked up to me and offered me a stick of cotton candy or a corn dog, I'd pick the cotton candy 10 times out of 10 because it's just glucose, right? I can walk around the fair. I can burn it off. I can bench press. I can go on a run. Yeah. I mean, long term, I'd, I'd rather not do the cotton candy or the, or the corn dog, but I wouldn't take the corn dog because of the rancid processed oils in it that basically are going to be used to comprise my cell membranes in my body for the next several months. I mean, like the vegetable oils are a much, much bigger problem, in my opinion, than even the cereals, grain, sugars, you know, even fructose and some of that other stuff that gets thrown under the bus these days. And that's that's something I want to talk with you a little bit about, you know, before I, I hear more about how you're actually fermenting and creating different oils is is just this this idea behind vegetable oils and their pervasiveness in our food system and, and what's wrong with that. And, and you know, you're free to start wherever you want to start, but I'm just curious what your take on this single most significant change in the human diet, basically the fast rising consumption of vegetable oil and the rise in chronic disease. And, and if you feel there's a correlation, if you could expound on that. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to the Catavans for a second, I also find it interesting that a lot of Pacific Island nations like Catava, they have diets that are largely root vegetables. You know, it's, it's not only a component, but but some populations, we're talking 80% plus of calories coming from carbohydrates via mainly root vegetables like sweet potatoes. And other diets like the Inuit, which of course you know, consume very, very little carbohydrate and primarily protein and fat from, from animals. Yet yeah. there's there's no culture or population that has ever consumed large amounts of vegetable oils. Right, right. Oh, and and real quick, I should note, sorry to interrupt, you know, much of the chagrin of a lot of our keto listeners, when you're talking about many of these islanders who actually eat a high carb diet, um, you know, if you look at like the, the Aztecs and the ancient Egyptians, like very, very high carb, and you don't see the manifestation of chronic disease in some of these societies. But it's important to note, not only are the carbohydrates primarily comprised of, you know, as you just noted, tubers, and then fruits and vegetables, but they're not accompanied 
by the industrial seed oils that can result in insulin insensitivity that makes the carbohydrates very damaging. There's a very active people they're eating a lot of anti-inflammatory foods, which combat any type of inflammation that might be present from the sugars, you know, like fish and coconut oil and stuff like that. Typically, their circadian rhythm is more spot on. They aren't sitting at a desk for 40 plus hours a week. They're not exposed to a lot of environmental toxins. And so, you know, a high carb diet and, and, and possibly you know, there's some theory about even the proximity to the equator allowing for better insulin sensitivity, um, better vitamin D production, a little, a little bit better ability to be able to handle fruits and vegetables and carbs and stuff like that. So, this is an argument for high carb diet, but it's showing that it's probably not carbs that are the issue when it comes to chronic disease. We are speaking the same language, Ben. And the, the metaphor that I've heard and have used in the past is that if, if you already have metabolic issues, throwing, throwing a, a lot of carbohydrates at that may not be a good idea. And, and if you look at those metabolic issues like a house on fire, uh, eating, eating a high carb diet is like throwing a lot more wood on, in that house in, that's on fire. But carbohydrates probably weren't the initial spark that that lit the house on fire. It's looking right. like that was seed oils, the overconsumption of seed oils. Right. And right. To, to answer your question, you know, about the correlation between these oils and disease, chronic disease is a major issue. You've talked about this before. The stats on this are crazy. Six in 10 American adults have a chronic disease. Four in 10 have multiple chronic diseases. So 40% of the country is walking around with heart disease and diabetes or cancer and dementia, um, at least, you know, if not three or four, it's, it's tragic. And for the first time in recorded history, we're seeing a decrease in healthy life expectancy in the US. And we're the only country in the world where this is happening outside of a few war-torn countries. Um, it, it's really unacceptable in my opinion. And I think it, it, there, are, there are certainly a lot of things to blame, but diet is, is center stage. And so when we look at, well, what's changed from the time when we didn't have chronic disease or it was very low single digit percentage of the population to today where it's 60% of the adult population in this country. And certainly we, we ate more carbohydrates through the 1900s, but mm -hmm. we, we've actually eaten less sugar and less carbohydrate for the last couple of decades while obesity and disease rates have continued to go up. We're not eating any more saturated fat, cholesterol, sodium, we're not eating any fewer fruits and vegetables. We're not eating any fewer micronutrients. You know, we're, we're smoking less, we're drinking less alcohol. Everything the CDC says we should do to prevent disease, we're actually doing it. Mm -hmm. The exception is the consumption of vegetable oils. That is the one major food in our diet that has increased in line with increasing rates of chronic disease. Now, of course, this is just correlation. You know, this isn't a, 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 the gold standard randomized controlled trial, but it, it points a really big finger at vegetable oils as a component of our diet that we should shine a spotlight on and look at in a little bit more detail to figure out what's really going on when we eat these things. And you know, we can talk about that. Um, that's been done over the last few decades and the results aren't looking good. Yeah. There are a lot of ways to look at, you know, why are vegetable oils bad or are vegetable oils bad? And one is the evolutionary precedence that we talked about where there isn't one. There's, there's no population in the history of the world that has started consuming vegetable oils and not gotten sick and overweight and obese. Similarly, there's no population that's sick and overweight and obese that doesn't consume vegetable oils. So that's just a starting point. You know, you can, you can also look at just common sense, um, you know, and, and we can get into the randomized controlled trials, but how, how much real food would you have to eat to get the amount of oil that you'd get in a typical restaurant meal, you know, maybe five tablespoons oh. of oil in a typical restaurant meal? Oh gosh, a ton. An impossibly large amount. So let's just start with corn oil. A lot of Mexican food restaurants will, uh, will, will cook with corn oil just to get, just to get five tablespoons of corn oil. That might be what you find in a, you know, nachos or a mm -hmm. burrito or something like that. Uh, you, you'd have to eat 98 ears of corn, 98 corn on the cobs to get five tablespoons of corn oil. If you use sunflower seeds, you'd have to eat nearly 3,000 sunflower seeds to get those five tablespoons, uh, 40 cups of brown rice to get five tablespoons of rice bran oil. Now, this just points to, hmm, if it would have been evolutionarily impossible to, to consume this amount of these seed oils, what's happening? And what happens is we get an unnaturally large amount of omega-6 linoleic acid. And linoleic acid is found in pretty much every food. And it's found in maybe one, 2% of that food, you know, upwards of three, 4%. But these seed and vegetable oils contain 
50, 55, up to 75% omega-6 linoleic acid. Uh, so yeah, that, you know, that's, that's just the, the common sense piece combined with the, the trends in consumption. And, and so we, we can talk a little about what happens when you eat all that omega-6 fat, but it, it really does come down to seed oils being very high in this, uh, this type of fatty acid, omega-6 linoleic acid that humans have never before consumed. And then the way we grow these vegetable oils is extremely inefficient. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I want to talk about what it does to the environment and to the body uh, for sure. Now, of, of course, you know, I have to push back a little bit about the idea that, well, you know, whatever, if you got like five tablespoons of corn oil and that requires like 100 ears of corn to get or, you know, a few tablespoons of sunflower oil, you know, whatever you said, 3000 sunflower seeds. Well, you could say the same thing about like, you know, how many avocados to get avocado oil or how many olives to get olive oil or, you know, the fact that a lot of people People will do like, you know, these superfood greens powders that you'd have to eat tons and tons and oodles of vegetables to be able to get the benefits of. I I don't think that the flaw is the hyper concentration of of oils or nutrients or anything like that. I think it's more of the damage that occurs during the extraction and the processing combined with, especially for the examples that you raise, like corn or seeds or grapes or rice, the concentration of the linoleic acid, which you actually don't see in other things that you could hyper-concentrate, like, like olives or avocado oil. So I don't think the evil necessarily lies in hyper-concentration of nutrients or fatty acids. I think the problem lies in the nature of what it is that you're concentrating, meaning in this case, high levels of omega-6 fatty acids or linoleic acid, combined with the extraction methods leading to damage of some of the more fragile components of those food, those foods, particularly the fats. And, and I think that's, that's where the issue lies. I would never want people to think, well, just because something's hyper-concentrated, it's dangerous. It's more like, you know, what's in it that's made it hyper-concentrated and also what extraction method was used that may have or have not done damage to that compound. Does that make sense? That completely makes sense. And I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to look at something like the the act of processing or the act of concentrating and and want to call that generally good or bad uh, it, it's neither I, th- I think it just means hey we should take a closer look at this if it's something that requires hyper concentration that wouldn't have otherwise been available before modern processing you know let, let's just take a second look and make sure there's there's nothing in there that's uh cause for concern and in the case of seed oils when you take that second look you, you know and you see th- this large amount of linoleic acid and omega-6 fat and you do the additional studies, turns out there is cause for concern. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've gotten into this a lot before on the podcast, the the issues with the excessive amounts of omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids in a typical Western diet, you know, in the very high omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. I think that, I mean, if you were to go to PubMed and look at the pathogenesis of many diseases like cardiovascular disease or cancer or inflammatory or autoimmune disease, you see a very good correlation between the omega-6, omega-3 ratio and the amount of damaged fatty acids that one might be consuming and the onset of these diseases. And, and a lot of times you see the flip side when it comes to like the omega concentration, you know, and I've done interviews about this as well that I'll link to in the show notes, uh, the concentrations of omega-3 fatty acids and an increase in uh, HDL, protective HDL, or a, a decrease in the rate of cardiovascular disease. We could talk until we're blue in the face about the damaging effects of some of these rancid processed fatty acids. But really, you know, I've kind of kicked that horse to death, as as has um, Kate Shanahan. I think that's one of the better books out there on fats. Uh, Do you you recall the name of her book? Now I'm blanking on it. Deep Nutrition is her first and the Fat Burn Fix. Yeah, Deep Nutrition and the Fat Burn Fix. If you really want to wrap your head around what the problem is with these fatty acids, those those are really, really great books. But I don't think it's a newsflash to folks that like canola oil or 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 grapeseed oil or you know, processed sunflower oil or or even rice oil, things like that are doing damage to their bodies. I think what a lot of people may not realize, Jeff, is the environmental impact as well, like deforestation, a lot, a lot of the other issues there. Can you get into that? Yeah, absolutely. And your, your audience likely is very familiar with, uh, with, with the health issues. You've talked about it on a number of podcasts quite eloquently. And you, you would think this would now be you know, mainstream conventional nutritional knowledge. Unfortunately, we're, we're not there yet, but ho- hopefully we'll get there. And I, I think the, the negative environmental impact of vegetable oil crops may, may actually help help our cause in, in bringing the health issues to the forefront. We've seen this with other types of foods that are um, allegedly bad for the environment. 
is that shines a spotlight on, well, is it good for our health anyways? And in the case of vegetable oil crops, when we're destroying the environment to grow food that that kills us essentially, that, that harms us, that, that's what makes the least amount of sense. You know, it would be one thing if there were a food that was not so great for the environment, but it was like some sort of superfood that extended our lifespan, you know, th then we're kind of making a trade-off. Um, whereas with vegetable oils, there are no, there is no trade-off. And to, to get into some of the details here, the process of growing a crop to press its seed for oil is highly inefficient. And vegetable oil crops are now two of the top three causes of global deforestation, specifically soybean and, and palm oil. And they're approaching a third, I think they're around 30% now of, of global croplands are just dedicated to vegetable oil crops. So essentially what farmers do, um, not, not our company, is clear, clear a rainforest because often these crops grow in, in very temperate or tropical regions, clear a rainforest or some other natural ecosystem, plant a bunch of seeds, wait six months or so for those seeds to grow, harvest the plant, you know, t tear it out completely and press its tiny seeds for an even tinier amount of oil and then feed the leftover of those seeds to animals, feed the oil to humans, and then, and then do it all over again, often requiring irrigation, fertilizer, glyphosate, you know, subsidies to make it affordable, and, and then a bit of a blind eye to actually make it a, a economical at all. And we've done this at such a mass scale, vegetable oils are now the most consumed food in the world after rice and wheat. E even though they're so prevalent, they're still the fastest growing subsector of global agriculture. So this problem isn't going away anytime soon, uh, massive use of land. And when you look at what crops are, are leading to greenhouse gas emissions or you know, CO2 emissions, uh, four of the top five most greenhouse gas emitting crops are vegetable oil crops. So there, there's really no reason that, that we should be destroying the planet to, to grow these oils and fats that, that do so much harm to our health too. You know, in terms of the actual evidence, I know some people might still be pushing back or, or may not be familiar with the evidence on the health aspect, but I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll put a link to a bunch of studies in the show notes. If you go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash zero acre podcast, because I mean, you, you can look at, at the study on soybean oil, you know, and, and the obesogenic and diabetic potential of that compared to like coconut oil. You can look at the onset of osteoarthritis in terms of the ratio of plasma omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. You can look at the omega-6-3 ratio and dementia or cognitive decline. There's a bunch on omega-6 fatty acid and breast cancer. The linoleic acid that you were talking about that gets so hyper-concentrated in these vegetable oils, Jeff, there's this stuff called anandamide, which is like the bliss molecule that's like this addictive molecule. It actually increases the addictive potential of food and induces obesity. I mean, the list of, of studies goes on and on when it comes to this stuff. Yet the problem is not only is it pervasive, but it's pervasive in even health foods. You know, I've talked about before how I'll walk into like the healthy food section of the, the airport newsstand and pick up my sugar snap peas or beet chips or whatever else. And you look at the label and typically in addition to whatever, you know, vegetable that's in there, there's soybean oil or canola oil or, you know, some other problematic oil in combination often with sugar. And then, like I mentioned, most restaurants, it's almost always canola oil or sometimes even a good oil has just been sitting out in the heat and and in the light for a long time, which can also damage, you know, olive oil and avocado oil. And you almost just have to have your spidey sense up 24 seven when it comes to these oils, again, because of their pervasiveness. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. And, and so I'll, I'll link to more studies in the show notes for those of you who need more, more proof of that. But I, I think what we should talk about now is what you've been up to. So I, I want to get into zero acre farms and how it came to be and and what you guys are doing over there. I realize there's probably a, a lot in there, but I'd love to hear the story. Definitely. And to your point about uh, you know the, the snap peas or, or beet chips, so many of these foods, and even with so many restaurant meals, we're so close to them being delicious and at least benign, if not proactively healthy. But often the one thing that holds it back is soybean oil, canola oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil. That's really frustrating. And Eating out is really fun. It's a very social experience. You get to try new foods, you know, all of chefs, uh, different chefs, best creations. But, you know, you have in the back of your mind, oh, man, this stuff is cooked in a lot I of know. soybean oil. I know. Really I've always got like activated me. charcoal waiting for me back home when I, when I go out <laughs> to eat just because I know, you know. Yeah. And, and I've heard you talk about spirulina and glycine before as sort of the, the first aid kit with vegetable oils, which, uh, which I think is really smart. Mm -hmm. What we want to get to with Zero Acre Farms is folks who don't listen to nutrition podcasts or read health books or spend their free time, you know, reading, reading up on PubMed. They can just go out to eat. They can go eat over at a friend's house. They can eat packaged food. 
and they don't have to bring their first aid kit and they're not eating foods that actively harm harm them. And this was sort of the the North Star for Zero Acre Farms from the start. And so to back up, give, give a little backstory here. When I was running Catava, uh, the, the restaurant that we talked about, it was fairly straightforward to get the best version of different ingredients, you know, to get the 100% grass-fed beef instead mm-hmm. of the factory farm beef, to use the pasture-raised eggs, to use the organic produce, that sort of thing. But then when it came to using oils and fats, there wasn't a clear answer. And everything seemed like it required some sort of trade-off. If we wanted a, an oil that we could you know, cook the heck out of in a, in a deep fryer or a, or a wok, uh, an oil that would have a neutral enough flavor so it could be used in everything from uh, salad dressings to, to Asian stir fries. And uh, talking to a lot of other restaurant owners, <laughs> Ben, you've alluded to this uh, and, and you'll know this, uh, this frustration firsthand going to a restaurant and asking if they can cook an olive oil only to find out that that olive oil they used was actually 80% canola oil. Right. And the reason for this is partly costs, um, which you mentioned, but also the properties of, of olive oil. You know, part, partly the the flavor, which is, you know, dip a good sourdough bread and some and some nice extra virgin olive oil with a little salt. Uh, there's there's nothing better, but that's not necessarily a flavor that restaurants want in all of their dishes. And and olive oil tends to clump up in the fridge. So, you know, when you're making like dressings ahead of time, it, it's it's difficult for restaurants to do that if it's going to be in the fridge for the next couple of days. So when we were looking, you know, first starting Zero Acre Farms and trying to solve this problem of how do we get vegetable oils out of the food system? That idea kind of came about partly through my restaurant experience and in not finding an oil that that we could just use as a workhorse uh, in, in the kitchen. And talking to other chefs, it seemed like we weren't the only ones. And the oil that that was used in restaurants was often an afterthought. You know, every other ingredient, especially Michelin Michelin starred restaurants, had been thoughtfully accounted for. And then you know, the restaurant would just buy like bulk olive oil from from the or, uh, sorry soybean oil from the distributor. Hey, so there's this company called Timeline. Now, Timeline, as the name might imply, if you're paying attention, is an anti-aging or like a longevity company, but it's very unique. They rely upon what are called postbiotics, which are the nutrients your body makes during digestion and an emerging driver based on research of really good health span and lifespan. It's one of the first so-called postbiotics to be shown to have these major health benefits. It upgrades your body's cellular power grid, meaning it operates to increase the health and the density of your mitochondria. 500 milligrams alone of urolithin A significantly increases muscle strength and endurance with no other change in lifestyle, which is crazy. And this company called Timeline Nutrition, like I mentioned, they have this stuff called MitoPure. MitoPure is urolithin A. And they have it as like this great tasting berry powder that you could mix in a yogurt or a smoothie. They have it in a protein powder. So you get the muscle health benefits of whey protein added to the bioenergetics of the urolithin A in the MitoPure. And then soft gels for the days when you're on the run and you just want to kind of conveniently grab and go. If you haven't tried urolithin A and you're into the whole anti-aging longevity scene, got to try this stuff out. Timeline is going to give you 10% off your first order of MitoPure. So you go to timelinenutrition.com slash Ben. TimelineNutrition.com slash Ben. Use code Ben to get 10% off your order. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N. TimelineNutrition.com slash Ben. I recommend you try their starter pack, which has all three, the berry powder, the protein powder, and the soft gel, so you can try all of them. So TimelineNutrition.com slash Ben. All right, folks, let's just say you're faced with a hungry crowd at some point this summer or You want the Cadillac, the Tesla, the Lamborghini, and the Ferrari of grills. The same grill, barbecue grill, smoker, you see me using in my cookbook, on my website, on Instagram. I live and die by this thing. Well, I don't die by it. I live by it for sure, though. Hamburgers, steaks, salmon burgers, vegetables, even dessert. Six-in-one versatility. You can grill, smoke, bake, roast, braise, barbecue, And it's all the wood-fired perfection. Like all your friends who are using the old school smokers are going to be jealous. Ties to your phone. You can walk away. It'll automatically adjust things on the fly so there's no more babysitting your baby backs. Over 1,500 recipes in the app. And again, like this thing has just saved my butt so many times for so many dinner parties, for so many barbecues. And it's basically just amazing. So check out Traeger.com, T-R-A-E-G-E-R dot com traeger grills traeger.com all right folks i got a personal invite with your name on it all right chris 
right? Or Jennifer, no, maybe John. Well, whatever your name is, this invite is for you. It's an invitation to come hang out with me and my whole family for the one weekend I look forward to every year, way more than any vacation or event or trip I plan. It's basically the most epic party of the year with a wellness twist, a true biohacker's paradise and relaxing retreat all in one, a gathering jam packed with the latest anti-aging and wellness tools, a smorgasbord of healthy, home-cooked, paleo-friendly food, clean, keto-friendly, natural wine, and organic coffee, an event so intimate that only 50 people are allowed to attend. It's called Runga, and you, as my podcast listener, are officially invited. Tiny sneak peek of what's included is a full schedule of breathwork, cold plunges, yoga, meditation, and sound healing, intimate access to live talks and podcasts by health and wellness experts, workouts led by a bunch of folks, including me, an extensive nutraceutical bar stocked with NAD, injectable and liposomal nutrients, peptides, literally, like every day you can get injected with peptides, NAD, whatever you want, unlimited access to hyperbaric oxygen chambers, PEMF, vibration platforms, electrostim, and of course, you'll get to learn how to make my wife's incredible mouthwatering sourdough bread from her herself because she's there teaching cooking classes. But there's even more. I've got an exclusive bonus just for you. If you send in your application to get into this event, again, called Runga, by August 15th, by August 15th, which is coming up fast, they're going to toss in a free Genova Diagnostics nutritional evaluation test. That is an amazing test for micronutrients and includes recommended therapeutics, nutrition, supplements. It's a really, really good test. I run it with a lot of my clients. $500 test. They're throwing that in for free. And what's cool is when you're at room, you'll be able to talk to a lot of the experts about your results. So lots of bonuses there. So if you want to come and do daily workouts with me, learn how to make incredible sourdough bread, eat food hang out at the biggest, healthiest party in the world and attend the most epic gathering of the year. You got to claim your spot at Runga today. Go to bengreenfieldlife.com slash Runga, bengreenfieldlife.com slash R-U-N-G-A. It's in Austin, Texas. Who doesn't love Austin? From October 13th through the 15th, but I got to warn you, spots are filling up fast. There's only 50 available total. After that, they close the doors. It's that intimate, folks. So be sure to act now and apply today at bengreenfieldlife.com slash Runga whatever your name is, <laughs> I look forward to seeing you there. It's so crazy. I've been like to like to five-star sushi restaurants, you know, cause some restaurants you can see behind the counter and, and that's for a reason, like a sushi restaurant, they want you to see the chefs. But I mean, like I've kind of like leaned forward and, and looked underneath and it's literally like the cheapest ass vegetable oil from the grocery store. I've seen like Jiffy's peanut butter down there for some of like their high-end rolls that have little bits of peanuts. And like it, it's, it's crazy. It's like they'll go to the far reaches of Japan and France to harvest some fringe superfood to, you know, put in their sprouted salad and then just drench it in a super problematic oil. It, it is really weird. It's like there's this cognitive bias or something. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, hopefully all, to, all, all together educating about this and you know, we can slowly, slowly change that. There's precedent for that. We used to cook everything in animal fats and then because of consumer, uh, demand and different demands of organizations, we all, uh, restaurants switched to trans fats a few years later, realized, oops, that was a horrible idea. This is actually killing people. So there was, an, a, again, pressure to switch from trans fats to now what everyone uses, which is vegetable oils. We're now on like the third uh, third item on the list in terms of preference. You know, the preference was animal fats. All fast food restaurants use that. Then there was pressure to switch to trans fats, um, which were which were as stable as animal fats and, and remained liquid. Then we realized that was bad, so switched to vegetable oils. Chefs don't really want to use this. It's just the only option that's available, really. And and so we want to do something about that. And I, I research, you know, can we scale up regenerative agriculture, beef tallow? Um, can we scale up olive oil? And for for various reasons, you know, we can go into, but for various reasons, none of those were scalable or they they weren't realistic. And, and some of the oils, unfortunately, that are better for our health because they're lower in omega-6 fats are the oils that are most problematic for the environment. And palm oil is an example of this, tends to be lower in, in omega-6 fats, uh, but is, is wreaking havoc all along the tropics. You know, it only grows within 10 to 15 degrees of the equator, so it's competing for land with rainforests. And unfortunately, the same goes for other fruit oils, whether that's coconut oil or olive oil, they tend to be problematic. Uh, in the case of olive oil, they're, they're up there with almonds as some of the thirstiest crops that require the most water, coconut oil, only grows in areas that tend to be extremely biodiverse, uh, like rainforests. So it's it's it has the biggest negative impact on on biodiversity. So I was looking at all of this and banging my head against the wall on how to solve this problem of vegetable oils at scale with an oil that would actually do the trick. And there wasn't anything. So I came across some some scientific literature about using a method of fermentation to produce 
healthy oils and fats. And th this research has actually been going on for decades, but no one had had really done anything with it in the context of solving this problem of vegetable oils. And uh, and I, I thought that that was that, that there was an opportunity there and a big gap. And th the more I looked into it, the more I realized that fermentation was the key here and that we didn't have to only have two categories of you know, vegetable oils as one and animal fats as the other. But there's room for this additional category of uh, oils, fats made by fermentation. And when you make oils and fats using fermentation, you get this incredible fatty acid composition and a fraction of the environmental footprint, footprint about uh, 10 times lower than, than vegetable oil. And that great environmental story also helps push, push these types of oils and fats. We, we, we call them cultured oil toward audiences that, you know, maybe otherwise wouldn't care so much about optimizing their fatty acid composition, but do care about eating more sustainable foods. So, uh, that, you know, it's, it's a nice one, two punch better for health, better for the environment. Okay. So, so fermentation, like mo microbial oil production, how's that actually work? You know, like when, when I'm going to make yogurt in my kitchen, you know, I got to have typically some type of a, of a, a sugar or a starch to feed the bacteria, some type of a starter, uh, typically like a cream or milk, uh, a heating process where the fermentation occurs. And so there's obviously more to it, I would imagine, than just like, you know, putting some olives in a jar and let them sit for a while. So how, how exactly does this work, this microbial oil production? An explanation here is certainly important because this this isn't something that folks are familiar with, uh, oil as a result of fermentation. The same would have been the case for each fermented food that we've now come to love. Uh, we also didn't have a name for these foods. So you know, what did we call beer before we had the word beer? What did we call yogurt? What, what did we call that thick, tangy, fermented substance from milk? You know, we now call it yogurt and it seems obvious. But this was a challenge we had. What, what do we call this? And you know, we ultimately landed on cultured oil. And so what, what that means, what, what fermentation is, every fermentation uh, in food and, and the ones that you described are communities of microorganisms, and we, we often call them cultures. And these communities of microorganisms consume the sugars that are found in different plants or animal products like milk. So that could mean consuming the sugars in, in things like cabbage, milk, barley, grapes and turning them into things like uh, sauerkraut and cheese and yogurt and beer and wine. So these, these cultures or microorganisms consume sugars and turn them into different outputs. Um, in the case of bread, that those outputs are CO2 uh, for leavening. In the case of beer, it's, it's CO2 for carbonation and alcohol for you know, beer's alcohol content. Lactic acid is what's produced by these cultures. In the case of yogurt or, or uh, also in sourdough bread, which gives sourdough, mm -hmm. it's, it's sour. And turns out there are also oil cultures. And what oil cultures do is they transform sugars into healthy fats instead of lactic acid or alcohol or, uh, or other fermentation outputs. Hmm. So what cultured oil is, is the, the output of an oil culture. And it may be hard to wrap your head around now, um, the same way it may be hard, you know, it maybe would have been hard to to first describe olive oil, it's just oil from an olive, or beer, which is just you know fermented barley. Cultured oil is from an oil culture. And so what that process looks like is a community of microorganisms, we, we call it an oil culture, okay. and they consume natural plant sugars, they transform those plant sugars into healthy fats. And so the, the, those, those fats are within that culture, it's then pressed, like pressing olive oil, and that pressed oil is separated, filtered, and basically put in a bottle and that's, that's cultured oil. What, and what type of plants do you start with? We can start with any plant sugar. Uh, th this is actually one of the things that's most interesting about cultured oil, in my opinion, is it's, it's agnostic to where it is produced and to the exact plant sugars that are consumed. Hmm. So those sugars could come from uh, sugar cane, from sugar beet, from, from other plant sources. Um, and it, it partly depends on the geography. So if cultured oil is produced in, in Europe, then something like a sugar beet may make sense because that's what grows most productively in Europe. If it's produced in, say, South America, something like sugar cane may, may make the most sense because that's what uh, is grown most efficiently and sustainably there. Uh, but at the end of the day, we just need a carbon source. And that carbon source uh, most efficiently comes from sugar, you know, which ultimately comes from plants photosynthesizing sunlight and storing that energy as sugar. That sugar is fed to these microbes and then they produce healthy fats. 
Super interesting. So, so help me wrap my head around this. Cause, cause you know, one of my sons was wondering this last night when I was showing the little bottle of oil that I use for the salmon and the mushrooms, why wouldn't you just use extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil or, or butter or something like that? Like, like what, what is it that would make this such a game changer? Um, is, is it the environmental impact? Is it, is it the cost and the scalability or, or something else? What we found is every other oil requires some sort of compromise, and it partly depends on what each consumer cares most about. Um, certainly, we didn't get into this mess of chronic disease and mass deforestation and, and environmental disaster by overconsuming artisanal extra virgin olive oil. At the same time, I don't think that olive oil and, and butter will get us out of this mess. And there are a few issues. You know, I, I really wish we could have found a way to scale that because it certainly would have been a lot easier. One of those issues is adulteration. And you've talked about this before. There's been a history of adulteration for both olive and avocado oil. Yeah, I, I, had, a big, I had a big podcast, by the way, with a guy named uh, TJ, who's known as the olive oil hunter. You know, I subscribed to his quarterly to get uh, extra virgin olive oil and, you know, passes the cough test. You know, like you were talking about kind of the, the, the pungentness of olive oil can actually make it sometimes something you wouldn't want to cook with. But it, he, he went into the fact that even like the olive oil is really not the polyphenol, flavanol rich, spicy, heart healthy olive oil that you think you're getting half the time when you're just grabbing a bottle off the shelf at the grocery store. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, the, the olive oil hunter is an incredible name. And, uh, and I, I think that that is a leaps and bounds ahead of something like you go to Costco and buy olive oil, um, or you know, you go to your local supermarket and buy olive oil. You don't really know what you're getting when you do that. If you know the source well, then that's, that's a totally different story. Um, that, that said, there are still environmental issues with olive oil. But this, this, this comes back to something like TJ is doing, you, know, you get what you pay for. And often the reason olive oil is so problematic is for the environment is to make it more economical. So olives grow on a tree and they grow very slowly. And that, that creates a lot of interesting flavors that creates, you know, the, the bitterness um, that, we, that we've come to enjoy. Um, but when we're trying to make olive oil cheaper and more economical, slow growth isn't something that, that farmers are looking for. And so they irrigate with, with lots of water and that causes uh, growth to accelerate, but it also causes this, this massive water footprint. So there are ways to make olive oil better. It, it just means you know, more, more artisanally and growing very slowly. Um, and, and as a result, it makes it more expensive. And, and olive oil is interesting. You know, this is really the case with, with any oil crop. There's a huge spectrum of fatty acid compositions. So some olive oils are, are quite low in omega-6 linoleic acid. Others are as high as, um, you know, I've seen some that are as high as 27% omega-6, uh, 21% omega-6. Fortunately, they, they have a lot of polyphenols and, and antioxidants that protect the, those, those delicate omega-6 fatty acids from oxidizing. You know, w when, I'm, when I'm choosing what to eat, and, and I do eat out, and you know, I have a restaurant, so I eat out at restaurants, and often there's, there's no way to control the, the amount of omega-6 that, that we're getting in those restaurants. Um, you know, even when, totally other, separate topic, but even when we're eating chicken and pork, which is now so high in omega-6 linoleic acid from the vegetable oils and other crops that they eat, but you know, I'm all about minimizing the amount of omega-6 I get, and uh, increasing consumption of omega-3 certainly helps. Um, you know, the, the smash diet, as as you know and, and often um, recall, but sardines, mackerels, anchovies, salmon, and herring. I think there it is. is a smash, yep. yeah. um, certainly helpful. But but I'm trying to minimize the amount of omega-6 I consume. So mm -hmm. olive oil is certainly lower than soybean oil, sunflower oil at 50 to 75% linoleic acid. But you know, even 15% even linoleic acid, I, I'd rather have less. Uh, every percentage matters. And so cultured oil, for example, you know, we, we can get down to very low single digits, like 1%, 2 3% linoleic acid, in addition to the antioxidants that are in there. So so, so, so you know, I think I think that's one thing. There's, there's also the environmental impact. Um, and, and we've measured, so, so olive oil gets a bad rap when it comes to cooking. Um, and I think part of that is justified, but a large part is kind of just bogus. Mm -hmm. And olive oil is, is quite oxidatively stable compared to seed oils. Um, so we, we did a test and you know, we, we put it to the test and we cooked cultured oil, olive oil, and a number of seed oils for, uh, for five minutes, you know, kept it going at 10, 30, 60, and beyond. And we measured the oxidative products that resulted from this, uh, specifically aldehydes like 4-HNE, like which uh, is a toxin that wreaks havoc and causes, causes all sorts of issues in our body. You know, we do not want to kick off the lipid peroxidation process um, 
uh, in, in large quantities inside our body. And so the more we can minimize oxidation, the better. When we did this test, we found that there was no measure, there were no measurable uh, aldehyde generation after five minutes of cooking, which is, you know, I don't know, you sear an egg or, or uh, saute an egg or, you know, cook, cook something for a few minutes. That's kind of what you're looking at. At, at 10 minutes, there was uh, about 10 times less than olive oil and significantly less than other seed oils. And then even cooking for uh, you know, 30 minutes and beyond, less than half as much oxidative uh, oxidation or oxidative products as an olive oil uh, and, and uh, far less than in other seed oils. So you asked about olive oil as an example, certainly better than others. Um, that doesn't, in my opinion, mean that it's the perfect oil for cooking, but certainly makes one, you know, a, a great salad dressing if, you know, you're using it fresh. Um, avocado oil has a lot of the same adulterations as, as olive oil and cultured oil is pretty cool. It stays liquid in the fridge. And so that's nice if you're making a salad dressing, you know, the night before, or you're, you want to make a big batch of salad dressing that lasts the week. You won't have to take it out four hours before dinner. Uh, it, it'll just stay liquid in the fridge and won't clump up. And, you know, there, there are a lot of applications where people want a, a liquid oil to stay liquid. Yeah. And same goes for butter, you know, obviously delicious and a tasty spread on a nice piece of sourdough or maybe to put in your coffee if you're into that. But two thirds of the world is lactose intolerant or allergic to dairy, sensitive to dairy or avoids it for some other reason. Yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, you know, it, it's not for everyone. So I know you can cook at it with a pretty high heat. I think, uh, uh what'd you tell me? 485, something like that. Yeah, that, that's the smoke point that's been measured. Yeah, the, yeah, the smoke point. Obviously, I, th I think that's a touch higher than than olive or possibly even avocado. But of course, that that's enormously important, especially when you're cooking at high temperatures. You know, it returns back to the potential for 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 damaging of the fragile oils if you are cooking with a low smoke point oil. The interesting thing about this one staying liquid, even when it's in the refrigerator, it lends itself well to a lot of culinary use too. In my opinion, even though I just started experimenting with it, literally like last night. I would think that, I don't know if you've experimented with this at all, like infusion, you know, like, like a lot of times I'll, I'll do like oil extractions using turmeric or ginger or other herbs, and you can literally, you know, cook them down in the oil or the same way that you might make an, an infused alcohol, you know, like you can put a bunch of turmeric root and grind it and put it in vodka and like make a turmeric infused vodka. You can do these type of things with oils, but a lot of times it's hard to make an infused coconut oil or an infused butter, or it's not hard. It's just a little time consuming. You got to melt it down, put all your herbs, your salts, your spices in and, you know, and then you let it set and then you can, you know, refrigerate it and, and have it available for say smearing on sourdough bread or you know, using on top of a steak or something like that. But I'm curious, have you ever experimented yet with, with infusing a microbial oil or kind of enhancing the oil with different flavors? We haven't done too much in the flavor department. Um, some of our advisor had, advisors uh, have done that and have reported back deliciousness, but I, I've done a lot of infusions of olive oil with cultured oil. And in my opinion, it's a way to kind of get the best of both worlds. So if, if I want to have a dressing or, you know, a, a dipping oil that has that uh, bitterness of olive oil, you know, and get some of the polyphenols, uh, but, but I don't want it to clump up in the fridge. Um, and if I'm going to cook with it, maybe I want it to be a bit more oxidatively stable, you know, increase the smoke point a bit. Uh, like, like a 50-50 blend of cultured oil and extra virgin olive oil is a really good way to do that. You don't lose much of the taste, but you get all the benefits of, of having a more stable oil. And, uh, and so that, you know, that, that's one good way to do it. We, we had talked about smoke point and often smoke points of 500 degrees or more are cited for, you know, for oils like avocado oil, avocado oil is what I had cooked with before cultured oil. And we looked into this and interestingly, there, there's actually no documentation of that smoke point in, in avocado oil. And when you, when you look online of, you know, citations for 500 degrees, it will link to something that links to something else that links to something else that links back to that original thing. So it's kind of like this circle of citations and we couldn't find any primary evidence showing a smoke point of avocado oil that was over 482 degrees Fahrenheit. That was the, that was the highest we could find for avocado, which is still awesome. I mean, that's still a, a great, really high smoke point. Most other seed oils are kind of in that 400 to 450 range and, and extra virgin olive oil, you know, lower smoke point more in like the low 400s or high 300s. But like we had talked about, it's more oxidatively stable than those other seed oils. And so cultured oil, when we measured, had a 485 degree Fahrenheit smoke point. So that, that's the highest or one of the highest that we could find in, in the primary literature. And while smoke point may not be as important for the, the, the rancid oxidized products we're eating uh, you know, and, and preventing that, certainly you don't want your kitchen to smoke. Uh, you don't want to inhale smoke from cooking oils. There are all sorts of uh, acrolines and, and other aldehydes that uh, are, are 
that travel with the smoke, you know, up into your lungs. So you don't want that. Um, and, and you're just, you're, you're literally burning things in the oil, um, which, which can cause some other issues and, you know, maybe not great flavors. Uh, so you want to minimize, but you, you want to minimize the amount of smoking and you also want to minimize the uh, oxidation. So the best oils for cooking are those that have a high smoke point and are oxidatively stable. Uh, and turns out cultured oil is, you know, when you kind of chart smoke point on one axis and oxidative stability on the other, um, cultured oil is in the very top right of that chart. That's super cool. This is really cool. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, you have the environmental impact, which is a lot lower, even than, you know, harvesting like olives and avocados, and some of the good stuff. You've got the heart healthy aspects of it, the higher amounts of monounsaturates than you'd even find in like olive oil or avocado oil. The flavor, at least to me, seems just great. Like, like it doesn't have a, a super overwhelming flavor, but again, that lends itself well to a wide variety when it comes to culinary usage. And I'm curious, like, is, is this like the, um, is this the single product? Like, is it, are there more oils that you create using this process or is it just like this one oil that you guys are focused on making? We're focused on cultured oil right now in terms of what we're bringing to market. We want to create an entire ecosystem around cultured oil the same way you've You've seen ecosystems, you know, kind of grocery store shelf ecosystems pop up around uh, things like coconut oil or, or avocado oil. Uh, and when you look at cultured oil compared to those, uh, much lower environmental footprint, much more oxidatively stable. Um, like you said, it's I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Ben, um, and and appreciate that. Uh, it, yeah, it's a very clean, neutral taste, and it it really lets the the, the food flavor shine, which is often what you want. Um, so I, I've replaced all the oils in my cupboard with cultured oil. Uh, I, I do keep some some high quality extra virgin olive oil around, uh, and and yeah. I do keep some some uh, you know, 100% grass fed butter around. But yeah, it, it, it's basically the workhorse in in the kitchen. And so th th those other products in the ecosystem, you know, you just go to a grocery store and look at look at everything that's cooked in oil. You can imagine there's a lot of opportunity to make other foods, but we're starting with selling cultured oil online. Mm -hmm. And while, while that's where we're starting, that's, that's not where we see ourselves going long-term. Right. You know, our, our mission is, and we say this somewhat tongue in cheek is to give the world an oil change and we're only going to get so far selling to home cooks, but we think it's an important place to start where we really want to go is how do we get, how do we get McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's? How do we get them to cook their French fries and, and better fat and healthier, more sustainable oils? And hey, maybe that's cultured oil. And, you know, we think that that would be great for people's health and the planet, but it doesn't have to be. So we're just really trying to grow and raise awareness around this problem. If some of that funnels to uh, other healthy fats, you know, other more sustainable fats, great. But th that's where we kind of uh, we, we have our sights set on on packaged foods and, and restaurants. Uh, part of the yeah. reason we're starting with home cooks is we got to we got to bring the cost down and we do that through more production volume. And we get more production volume through, you know, more, more people buying cultured oil and supporting the cause. Yeah. yeah well, there, there's no way I'm going to throw my extra virgin olive oil and butter and ghee for sure. Cause I like some of the different flavors and varieties and textures, but I could totally see this stuff. Like you're referring to not only becoming the workhorse in my kitchen, but I think more is a lot more exciting to think about it potentially becoming the replacement at places like Wendy's or McDonald's or Burger King's as their cooking oil. Just, I mean, just imagine, I, I, I can't imagine what would actually happen in terms of the onset of chronic disease, or at least the correlation of chronic disease with say like fast food consumption, if we could figure out a way to make it healthier. It's, it's like people talk about Wi-Fi routers and how bad they are for you. Yet technically you could take the signal of a Wi-Fi router and convert it to a healing frequency. It's just like, nobody's doing it right now. This kind of reminds me of that. It's like, gosh, the impact would be huge because it's something that is so widespread, you know, <laughs> Wi-Fi routers and, and vegetable oil. So um, anyways, the, the, the thing is like, if I were to go to your website right now, and I'm not sure when this podcast is going to get released, but I couldn't see a place to actually order it. Are, are you guys shipping already? Or is it like a wait list scenario? Or where are you at? We're, we're not yet. Um, we launched Cultured Oil July 26th. Okay. So maybe this podcast will have, uh, will have gone, li gone live by then. And then, you know, everyone yeah. can order Cultured Oil, but uh, we're, we're, we're getting very close. Okay. And I know we've, we've got like some kind of a code for, for free shipping or something like that. that I'll put in the show notes at bengreenfieldlife.com slash zero acre podcast. But I mean, what is the price comparison? Like, like, are we talking about something that's, that's affordable at all? Or is the R and D on this from a back end perspective, just so big that, that it's a spendy oil. It's similar to, you know, a, like a 
premium extra virgin olive oil or you know organic avocado oil uh, it's in that ballpark and the the more you buy the the less expensive it gets we have to pay for shipping costs so uh, it's simply more efficient lower carbon emissions too yeah. you buy multiple bottles at a time so it, it gets under 20 bucks um per bottle when you do that which is which is in the neighborhood of you know some, something like an organic avocado oil uh, and and it's somewhere in between your kind of run-of-the-mill canola oil and uh, a premium extra virgin olive oil uh, sort of right in the middle of that that pricing do you think that's gonna be palatable to like the average fast food restaurant at that price point are you guys gonna figure out a way to scale it we have to figure out a way to to bring the cost down and what, what's uh interesting is when you look at our costs for cultured oil that we're selling online so many of those costs are just things like the bottle and the cardboard box it ships in and you know the supply chain to get it to the customer and so when we sell to when we sell b2b that cost comes down about 80 to 90 percent just by being able to sell um large amount of cultured oil you know in a, in a big tote that just goes directly to to that um to that customer we're not all the way there yet but we're we're very close in terms of b2b and we've seen some some restaurants uh and, and packaged food companies that are willing to make a change if consumers really demand it and and know that that will, at the end of the day, you know, in, increase sales for them. And so we, we hope that happens with cultured oil and that these restaurants see the benefits. That said, where we need to get to in the next several years is to bring the cost down so that even if restaurants could care less about the health of their customers or the health of the planet, it's just the right business dis- decision to use cultured oil. And I think we'll get there, but it'll it'll take a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything I can do to support, I'm happy to. And that's one of the reasons I want to get this podcast out. I just see this being potentially one of the big, big solutions to the the big vegetable oil problem that that we unpacked earlier in the show. And it's it's a pretty amazing new technology. I'm stoked. I got I gotta get my hands on some more bottles though to uh to start to cook with it and experiment with it and maybe infuse it. I just want to play with it and, and see what I can do with it, you know, as a as a wannabe chef. I just love playing with new ingredients and and this stuff's pretty cool and I like that it's in environmentally friendly. I could see it totally being scalable, uh, especially if more people get on board. So I would encourage everybody listening in, go go grab a bottle, support this thing. Let's get it off the ground. Um, BenGreenfieldLife.com slash zero acre podcast is where I'll put the show notes. I'll link to a bunch of the studies that we talked about, previous episodes that I've done with folks like Kate Shannon, who we talked about, and TJ, the olive oil hunter, if you want to take an even deeper dive into oils. And uh, Jeff, I want to thank you for for doing what you're doing, for coming on the show, for sharing this with us. And I also want to wish you the best of luck with this because I, I think it could be really, really big for for the health of the world as a whole. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate that. And certainly we'll, we will need some luck uh, in, in addition to, uh, you know, a lot, lot of other things. And I think we can we can really measure the, the success here based on global rates of chronic disease. Yeah. So um, we, we, we did create, a, a, if folks go to zeroacre.com slash Ben, we did create a, a, a special discount with they'll get free shipping on their first order of cultured oil. Uh, and Ben will definitely send you a, a bigger bottle. Uh, so uh, you could do some more experimentation. I'd right. we'll love to hear how it goes. Good, good. Because that little one's already half gone from last night's dinner. So, so, so zeroacre.com slash Ben, is that where you said people can go? Yep. Okay. All right. Sweet. Well, folks, I hope this has been helpful for you. And I hope this has gotten you uh, thinking a little bit about the oils that you use and the choices that you make when it comes to your health and the environment. And until next time, I'm Ben Greenfield, along with Zero Acre Farms, Jeff Knobs, signing out from bengreenfieldlife.com. Have an amazing week. More than ever these days, people like you and me need a fresh, entertaining, well-informed and often outside the box approach to discovering the health and happiness and hope that we all crave. So I hope I've been able to do that for you on this episode today. And if you liked it, or if you love what I'm up to, then please leave me a review on your preferred podcast listening channel, wherever that might be. And just find the Ben Greenfield Life episode. Say something nice. Thanks so much. It means a lot.